Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. Where we come to uh, the doxology of uh, Paul's prayer in this great chapter, verses 20 and 21. Have to admit there, and have been for many, many years, two of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. I will begin reading at verse 14 to remind us of the context of the prayer, what he's been asking, and then his doxology, his praising of God for his uh, great ability to see it through. Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have have been moved by this prayer. For it has demonstrated so much of what our own souls know we desire and need. And Paul now comes to this great doxology in which he encourages us that you indeed are able to do these things in us. Not just able as though somehow it could possibly happen, but that you will do it. You are doing it. Let our confidence, Lord, therefore soar. Our assurance, Lord, find its rootedness in your love for us here and take away this day a greater a greater enjoyment of who you are and what you are doing in our lives and therefore a greater strength to conduct ourselves in a manner pleasing to and in accordance with the character of our Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered what... Uh, what it would have been like for Moses to try and figure out all the logistics of, uh, of moving three and a half million people from, uh, from Egypt, from slavery, uh, to the promised land. I mean, it must have been a daunting task. I actually read that uh, you know, when he got to the Red Sea, if he had lined them up two by two, that it would have, the line would have stretched 800 miles and would have taken them 35 days and nights to get across the Red Sea. Now we know they did it in one night. That means that the sea had to have been spread three miles, opened up three miles wide, and they would have had to walk across 5,000 abreast. That's to get across the people of God in one night. Not only that, but when they got to the they got to the desert, right? They were nomads. They, they camped out. They would have needed a campsite every night the size of Rhode Island. That's astonishing to me, but that's, that's the nature of it. 
Or how would have he calculated the food? I think it was uh, the, uh, uh, who's it? Uh, okay, the quartermaster general of the army calculated that they would have needed 1,500 tons of food a day. That's enough to fill the boxcars on a train, two trains a mile long, and they'd have needed that every single day. Now, firewood to cook their food. We're not talking about staying warm at night in the desert, and you know how cold it can get. But just firewood, right? 4,000 tons of wood a day. Now, I've heard that when you're in the desert, you get thirsty. (laughs) Now, if they just had enough water to drink, then maybe, you know, wash out their dishes a little bit. We're not talking about showers. We're not talking about baths, nothing like that, not washing their clothes. 11 million gallons of water a day. Now, I'm trying to remember. Can somebody refresh my memory? How, How long were they in the desert? 40 years. Now, I don't know about you, but the logistics of that is staggering. It is absolutely and utterly staggering. Now, do you think Moses sat down and figured all that out before he took the job? No, I don't, I don't think so. See, he had faith that God would take care of it. As big as it was, as impossible as it was, he had faith that God would take care of it. And what I find so amazing in the light of just the simple facts about one set of circumstances in which God provided for his people, that we are almost completely unable to think of God in those same terms. We know that God loves us, right? We know he loves us, but amidst the pressure of providing for our rent, for our mortgage, tests that we have to take, medical results to await, transitions taking place in our lives. Simple fact of the matter is we ask ourselves, you know, in the midst of all this stuff I'm going through, is is God really able to take care of me today with this stuff? The answer, of course, is yes, because the scriptures speak. They shout from beginning to end about the fact that we have a God who is is omnipotent and who rules over all things in all places for all peoples for all eternity. And it is in that fact that our prayer to God finds its, its contentment and its simple affirmation, He is able. He is able. But if you're anything like me, you need to be reassured of that truth because you forget it as soon as you hear it. And that's precisely what Paul unfolds in this doxology. He's been asking in this incredible prayer that that God would, by his grace, grant it would be strengthened in the inner man. Why? So that we we could just rejoice and bask in the love of Christ for us, its width, its breadth, its height, its depth, and to have him dwell within us with such intimacy that our whole being, our whole countenance, everything about us is changed. In fact, he puts it in these wonderful words so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God, that all the communicable attributes that God possesses would be ours in abundance 
And we would radiate Christ wherever we go and with whomever we are with. And why is he confident that this can happen? Because God is able. Because God is able to do these things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that is at work in us. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. And as he approaches it, he really lays it out in excellent form as he always does. He tells us what God is able to do. He tells us how he does it. And then he calls forth from us the very thing that springs up in his own heart, and that is praise to God, a response to this truth. And so we'll proceed as he does and begin here. Paul first states what God is able to do. There's a story that's uh, told about a, a church in a small town, and probably in the Midwest somewhere, uh, that seemed to have everything going its way. And this is the way they, they measured that. Okay, There were no bars, there were no liquor stores, there were no houses of ill repute or anything else like that in town. And the church was absolutely delighted. They felt as though the, the town was going just the way they, they needed it to be. However, one day, a guy actually opened a bar, a nightclub, on Main Street. Not in an alleyway, but on Main Street. Well, the people in church, they got really upset. And so they began to, to meet together and to pray that God would do something. And in fact, a couple of members actually prayed that the place would burn down. Well, believe it or not, a couple of weeks later, a thunderstorm comes through, lightning strikes the bar, burns it to the ground. To the ground. The bar owner, as you can imagine, was really upset. And so he knew how the church had prayed, so he got himself a lawyer and took up the court. And he, he, he had them challenged in court for contributing to his loss of, of income, his property. Church, for their part, they got themselves their, their attorney and they fought him back and said, no, that ain't so. Well, they went back and forth and back and forth and there were so many hearings and, and deliberations the judge finally just said, listen. He says, he says, I really don't know where the guilt lies. He says, there's only one thing that's absolutely clear here. He says, and that is that the tavern owner is the only one who believes in prayer. <laughs> and the church members don't. Now we laugh, but that's us. Right? We're those church members. Because we do not believe, really, in the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here. Prayer that is meant by the exceeding abundant power of God to do more than we can ask or think. But we're not alone. We have good company in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, the disciples, right? The first generation, maybe even the generation of Jesus. You remember that Peter had been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And an angel came and let him loose. And what did he do? He goes to the house where Mary, the mother of John, is living. 
Because there's a prayer meeting going on. Because those very people have been praying that he would be freed from prison. He knocks on the door. And Rhoda, the servant girl, hears it. And she goes to the door and she says, who is it? And she, she recognizes Peter's voice. Well, she is so excited. She, she doesn't even open the door. She turns around and she runs back in to the prayer meeting. And she says, Peter's at the front door. And you know what they said? You're crazy. She says, no, no, he's really at the front door. Well, they gave her a little bit more and they said, oh, it's probably his angel. She said, no, it is really him. Peter is still knocking at the door. Finally, they go and they open the door. And you know what the text tells us? They were astonished. How often we're like that. We either don't believe or we're we're surprised by the way in which God answers our prayer. But we ought not to be precisely because of what Paul says here. God is not not just able. The word able means he is working it out. He's accomplishing it. It is being done. Not, Not just that it has potential to happen, but he's actually doing it. God is actually doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is doing that. But I dare say that most of our prayer lives, we don't bank on that promise. We don't. We tend to be timid in our prayers, I think. There are lots of ways we can do that. For instance, um, sometimes we pray with, uh, with broad strokes in real generalities, right? Oh God, bless so-and-so. We don't say what we want the blessings to be, just, just bless them. Okay? We could be specific, however. We could pray something like, Lord, Jane needs patience and grace to wait for the results of her test. Grant that she might trust you to make them known to her when the time is right. What really makes us nervous is that if God doesn't give Jane patience and grace to wait, we'll feel as though he didn't answer our prayer. And that diminishes our confidence. However, if we just pray that God would bless Jane, almost anything that happens to her is good. Okay? So we're not really, really believing God. We're not believing his promises here. Or take the other times that we will pray for those things that we think are possible but not for those things that we think are a real stretch of the imagination so we'll ask him for what we think can be done but not for things that just seem so unlikely we just can't imagine it in other words we basically do this we say God if I can't do it you can't do it right That's how we pray. We don't pray for the impossible. We don't pray for the the large things because we're afraid. We're afraid that somehow it is not going to come true and something is going to be shown to be a sham. I don't think such prayers, broad prayers, prayers just for the possible, really honor God or acknowledge the reality of what Paul says here. 
that he is able, that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So with that truth in mind, I think, frankly, we should be much bolder in our prayer. I think we ought to bring our most daring petitions, our our most impossible requests, and I think we ought to add other things to them. I think we ought to let the whole church join together in its wildest dreams. You want a church building? Pray for it. You want a church that's going to grow in numbers? Pray for it. Got to believe God. Because if you believe it's just not possible, you'll be right. It won't be. There's no danger that somehow we're going to exceed God's limit to meet our requests. He is omnipotent. And he says right here that this is what he's going to do. We can dare in prayer. We can. And we ought to. It seems to me that one of the greatest failures we have as Christians is the failure to realize, really realize, that God is not like us. We are bound by time and space and capacity and ability. God is not. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he will do the things that he said he will do. But if we just measure what he's capable of in answering our prayers to what we think is possible or likely, that's all we're going to get. See, God is able to do exceedingly more. And it is that fact that really ought to encourage us to stretch forward in our prayers, to reach out for more, to say, I'm not going to be satisfied with these, these dinky little prayers. I really have dreams, not only for myself, but for others, for this world, for what it could be. As God's truth compels people to turn to Christ, to acknowledge him as Savior, and to live it. God is able to do that. And the truth of the matter is that you and I, each one of us, has seen the greatness of his answers in our own lives. Those, those things that we have asked for and he has surprised us. Perhaps in the way he's answered, perhaps in the amount that he's answered. But he's always gone beyond what we've expected. Because that's who he is. So I want to encourage you, do not grow tired praying because sometimes things don't happen just the way we think they ought. Dare in prayer. With God, the scriptures say, nothing shall be impossible. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And with the people of old and with the people of the future, should God tarry, we are to open our mouths wide that he might fill it. Let us remember that when we pray to the God who is unlimited in his love, his capacity, and his power to do the things that we desire, that seek his ends not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Well, the next thing Paul tells us is how God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He says, it's according to the power that works within us. 
Now those two little words according to, we've seen them a few times already, haven't we? And what they do is they, they remind us that, that God is, is giving to us out of this, this richness, this, this, this full extent, he is lavish. Remember I used a couple of weeks ago the, uh, the illustration of a millionaire who, if he gives according to his riches, is really just, he's pouring out money on people. And that's the way God is. When he gives according to his power, which is omnipotence, trust me when I tell you, it is enough to get the job done for you. It is. But the question is, how does he apply that power? This this is the part that gets a little closer to home. Because he says that it's through the power that works within us. God works in and through us personally, in your life and in mine. And what Paul is saying here is, of course, that God is working in our lives with power. That we can, you know, we can embrace that. Yeah, that's, that's good. We can get our minds around that. But that the power is actually expressed through us in a way that accomplishes his purposes. That's a little harder to grasp. Because you and I, we are, the scriptures tell us, his instruments in this world of his purposes. The problem is, of course, is that we can't honestly affirm that in our own lives, many of us. Because it just doesn't seem to match who we see ourselves to be. I mean, isn't that true? We, 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 most of us don't see ourselves as heroes or spiritual giants or having made you know, great accomplishments on you know, one thing or another. We don't seem to be people of significance politically or socially. No, I think we tend to see ourselves more like this, this woman, Jennifer, who, who once read a very disturbing report about the incidence of depression in women and how it was increasing And the fact that uh, many of them were taking up alcohol and prescription drugs as as a way to deal with it. And and it really bothered her. So she she began to pray about it. She said, Lord, what are you going to do? The problem was, is the Holy Spirit kept prodding her. And she got to thinking, maybe he wants me to do something. So she sat down one day to, uh, to figure out the reasons that were keeping her from her actions. From really trying to do something to help. And she listed things like the fact that she was shy, she was afraid of getting involved, she had a lack of time, she had a cold heart, she had feelings of inadequacy, she had a fear of failure, on and on and on. I think for most of us a pretty uh, common and daunting list. Is it not? Sure, we all feel this way. She finished her list, she, she happened to look at the clock and she realized she had to go get her kids. Okay, so she put on her coat and she went to grab her gloves as they were sitting uh, on, a, on the table there. And, and the gloves, of course, were just lying there limp and useless until she put them on. And the moment she slipped her hands in them, she realized that God didn't want her to worry about her limitations. He wanted his power to go to work in her just the same way as her. Her hands in that glove picked up those lifeless gloves and made them useful. And that that's what God wanted to do with her life. In spite of her inadequacies, her fears, her concerns, it was his power. 
so it is that even though we feel inadequate for the, for the work that God has given us, the people that he wants us to love and to serve, according to the power that is at work within us, it is his power. And so we think about people like, uh, like the woman who, who attends to the sick and the dying or, or the man who, who teaches a, a mentally handicapped fellow to paint. We think about the teenager who gives a couple of weeks to go to Joplin or Tuscaloosa to, to help people who are in need, not worried about what's going to happen to his school grades. We think about the, the missionary who, who labors with an African man trying to teach him the catechism for weeks and weeks and weeks so that that man can be an elder in his church of ten someplace in the bush. Oh, the world, the world looks at those kinds of circumstances, what those people are doing. I mean, it's just, it's off their radar screen. There's, not, there's no significance to that. But what God does is he takes millions of those actions that his people are doing around the world And he puts them together and they are such a power to transform this world that we don't see it. We can't see it because all we see is our tiny little part in it or somebody else's tiny little part. But we can't see the big picture. But the big picture is precisely what he is bringing about. And so the power that is at work in us is a power indeed to transform the world but it is added to your power and her power and that power. And so every little act of kindness, every time we act with integrity, every time we serve another, every time we persevere or act courageously in the face of, of prejudice or uh, injustice, God is changing the world by us and through us. And faith accepts this. Faith understands that this is true. God is working out his plan in the world, and for eternity, one moment, one person, one circumstance, one life at a time. And it's critical that we remember these things. So, so, so that when you come to set up church on Sunday morning, Put the chairs together and put the curtains up and bring the table down and do all the stuff you do. In a small church in New England, it seems to have no effect whatsoever. When you face circumstances that turn your life upside down and you're absolutely incapable of changing it. When God chooses somebody else for recognition over you, when you have slaved and worked and sacrificed When you face anger or ridicule from people that you know and care about, when these things happen, they are the moment that you are challenged to to embrace what he is doing through you and to act in a manner that that is godly and to open yourself to his power and his use in those circumstances, whatever they might be. Because as we all know, The ultimate end of that is that he makes us more like Christ. 
And the more we're like Christ, the more useful we are to his purposes in this world. And the more we try and hold ourselves back from the hurt, the pain, the embarrassment, the indignity, and everything else that can come our way, the less of an opportunity and witness we will have. Well, Paul finishes in verse 20, 21. You know, God does more than we can ask or imagine. He does this according to the power that is at work within us. And Paul's response ought to be, or is rather, just what ours ought to be, and that is praise. He says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God is deserving of more glory than we can ever offer. I mean, this, this prayer alone, Right? He's been praying that we'd be strengthened in a way by his spirit in the inner man so that we can, we can have Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, this intimate relationship, and to know this, this great love of Christ and to, and to be able to in some way fathom just the smallest hint of how massive it is. And in that, to see our response to his love for us well up and flow out from us in the great working of his spirit through us to others. And he does this by the power that cannot be stopped and that is working in us today, right now. No wonder glory is due to him in the church and in Christ forever and ever. I mean, when Paul talks about the fact that it's due God in the church, it's precisely because God has chosen the church to be his ministers, to be his instruments in this world. I mean, God displays his glory in the creation. We know that. right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Rachel was telling us this morning about the, the marvel of the human body and how, how is it possible that it could be anything but a, a witness to the glory and, and the creative genius and power and majesty of God. And it is. But as wondrous as those things are and as much as they display about the person of our God, nothing glorifies him more than you and I. And the reason is... Because you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving nothing but damnation. And he made us alive together in Christ. And he raised us up, adopted us as his children, and gave to us the primary responsibility of bearing witness to him in this world. And he's glorified in us as we do that. Even as we falter, even as we, as we fall down and get up again, even in our weakness and our need, he's glorified in us, in his church. God's also glorified in Christ Jesus, and, it, and it's right that it should be so, because if he's glorified in, in the church, he's glorified in Christ, who is the head of the church, and we his body. And Paul finishes the... It's by saying that God will be glorified through all generations forever and ever. In other words, there will never be a moment when God is not glorifying himself. Just as there will never be a moment when he is not able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So no matter what we face, no matter when or where it is, our God is great. 
And his power is laid before us. His promise to take it up, to believe it, and to pray it for ourselves and for others. For needy, for dying, for a hurting world. For stone-cold sinners who need their hearts broken just as ours were. For the glory of Christ to resound. There was a conference once in Omaha at a Presbyterian church. The people were given helium-filled balloons to let go when uh, something in the service uh, caused them to to want to exclaim something joyous and wonderful. I mean, since they were Presbyterians, they couldn't uh, they couldn't say Hallelujah, praise the Lord, or or shout Glory to God. You know, they were Presbyterians. They didn't dare. But it was amazing that throughout the service, these balloons kept popping up all over the congregation as the truth of God came forward and his people savored it. Paul, the great apostle who, who wrote the most astonishing theology, whose mind was sharper than anyone perhaps who has ever lived and who surrendered himself to God, didn't use a helium-filled balloon to sing his praises to God. He shouted it out. And it's precisely the way he, he ends here. He shouts it out with this final word, Amen. Amen. And he uses amen precisely because it was a wholehearted and corporate word used to endorse a prayer or praise of God. God's people would all do it. They'd say amen. And Paul invites us here this morning to do precisely that. Because our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Therefore, all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are are delighted in your greatness. We find our hope in your promises. And we ask that they would strike so deeply into us that once again today we would be refreshed by them. That we would find our prayer lives, our hope, our joy, our perseverance renewed because of who you are because of what you have said you are doing and will do for us ah Lord God you are so good to us we praise you, we thank you and we want to trust you you know our weaknesses, you know how quickly we can, we can fall away from the very things we've heard this morning and, and embrace fear or anxiety or depression or discouragement or any other of a hundred things Keep us. Keep us safe and closer to you in these things. Change us as a result. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.